Welcome to this message from Shofar Christian Church. May you experience God's grace as you listen to His Word being preached. It's um, interesting. I was, I'm, I'm going to just be sharing a little bit from Luke chapter 22. If you have your Bibles here, please open them at Luke 22. Um, or if you have a smartphone and you read Bible on your smartphone, please take out your smartphone and open it up at uh, Luke 22. And, um, you know, it's no, um, so many people today are indifferent towards Jesus. I don't know if you've, if you've noticed that. <clears throat> lots of people, lots of modern people, um, very indifferent towards Jesus. But it's noticeable that those who met him, who, those who actually met Jesus while he was on earth, were hardly ever indifferent towards him. <laughs> they, either, they either hated him and wanted to kill him, or they loved him and wanted to worship him, but they were hardly ever indifferent to him. And that just shows us that, you know, so many people who know about Jesus, but who are indifferent to him, they haven't actually met Jesus. Because you can't really meet Jesus and be indifferent to him. You can't meet the real Jesus. You can sort of make up a Jesus for yourself and be indifferent to him. But if you meet the real Jesus, I can guarantee you, you won't be indifferent to him. If you meet the real Jesus, you'll either love him or hate him, but there'll be strong feelings involved. But you cannot be indifferent to him. So um, I just uh, want to read to you um, from uh, quite a few verses um, from Luke 22, from verse 1 to about verse 32. Um, But I I just want you to notice two things um, while we're reading. Number one is there seems to be two plans here. Okay, the plans of the scribes and the Pharisees and all those kinds of guys for Jesus. Uh, And then Jesus' plans and the Father's plans. Uh, A plan of darkness and a plan of salvation uh, that we read about in this portion. And another thing that, that that sort of struck me as I read it about the second time is, it struck me that it's it seems like everyone in this account wants to kill Jesus. Everyone in this account seems to want Jesus dead. <laughs> okay, so I'm going to read it now and see if you can see that as well. And then we're going to talk about uh, why that is. And um, so, on. so, so Luke chapter 22 from verse one, and and <clears throat> afterwards, after at the end of the service, we're going to have communion together. This whole chapter is about communion. We're going to have communion together and, and trust the Lord that, that we will experience Jesus the way that the people who actually met Him experienced Him. So Luke 22 verse 1 says, Now the feast of unleavened bread called the Passover was approaching and the chief priests and the teachers of the law were looking for some way to get rid of Jesus for they were afraid of the people. Uh, you know, just like Jesus was inconvenient to so many people back then. Jesus is still <laughs> inconvenient to people now. And, you know, if, if you meet the real Jesus, uh, I'm, uh, like I'm going to show you, you're either going to surrender to him or you're going to want to get rid of him. Because <laughs> it's going to be a bit inconvenient in your life. But the crowds actually liked Jesus, so they were looking for a way to get rid of Jesus, you know, away from the crowds, apart from the crowds. <clears throat> and then it says, Then Satan entered Judas, called Iscariot, one of the twelve. And Jesus went to the chief priests and the officers of the temple guard and discussed with them how he might betray Jesus. They were delighted and agreed to give him money. He consented and watched for an opportunity to hand Jesus over 
uh, to them when no crowd was present. <coughs> then came the day of unleavened bread, on which a Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. And Jesus sent Peter and John, saying, Go and prepare for us to eat the Passover. Uh, where do you want us to prepare for it? They asked. He replied, as you, enter a city, uh, as you enter the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him to the house he enters. And say to the owner of the house, the teacher asks, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large upper room, all furnished. Make preparation, preparations there. They left and found things just as Jesus had told, uh, told them. So they prepared the Passover. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table, and he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat the Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you, for I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread gave thanks and broke it and gave it to them saying this is my body given for you do this in remembrance of me in the same way after supper he took the cup saying this cup is the new covenant in my blood which is poured out for you but the hand of him who is going to betray me is with me on the table the son of man will go as it has been decreed but woe to the man who betrays him. They began to question among themselves which of them it might be who would do this. Also a dispute arose among them as to which of them was considered the greatest. Jesus said to them, The kings of the uh, Gentiles lord it over them, and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors, but you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest." And the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who uh, is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who is at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. You are those who have stood with me, me in my trials. And I, con and I confer on you a kingdom, just as my father conferred one on me, so that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom. And sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked for you, so, so, so asked to sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you, Simon, that you that your faith may not fall, fail. And when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. Father God, we just thank you for your word, and we pray, Lord, that you'll, Lord, open our eyes and and even our hearts, Lord, to really see. Uh, what you want us to see in your word this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. So, there's a lot in this uh, passage um, that uh, too much actually for me to share, but I, I just want to focus on, on one thing. Um, it, it was really noticeable me, to me, like I said when I read this, that it, it seemed like everyone in this passage wanted Jesus dead. Everyone wanted him dead. Um, and if, if you look at, um, at, at Jesus' response, it's actually quite remarkable. And I think one of the reasons 
why everyone wanted Jesus dead and, and is because Jesus tends to bring out the worst in us. Okay, I'm going to leave that to hang there for a while so you can wonder, what on earth does he mean about that? Jesus seems to bring out the worst in us. If you look at, the, at, at this passage, even Jesus' disciples, Jesus seems to bring out the worst in them. He brings out the worst in the chief priests, they want to kill him. He brings out the worst in the teachers of the law, they want to kill him. He brings out the worst in the temple God, they want to kill him. Um, Satan, it's not hard to bring out the worst in him. I think there's just pretty much bad in him. But he wants Jesus dead. Judas Iscariot, Jesus, one of Jesus' disciples, betrays Jesus. He brings out the worst in him. He wants Peter denies Jesus. The disciples forsake Jesus. It seems like Jesus brings out the worst in everyone. But here's the, here's the trick. And um, I, I read on, on Facebook a while ago, oh no, actually on Twitter a while ago, um, who of you know Lecrae? He's a Christian rapper. He said, I got the best of Jesus and he got the worst of me. I got the best of Jesus and he got the worst of me. And when you meet the real Jesus, you'll always find that he brings out the worst in you. But he brings out the worst in you so that you can either hold on to it, knowing what you're doing, or give it to him and he can exchange it for the best of him. And we see both those groups. We see people, <laughs> Jesus brings out the worst and they try and kill him and they actually do kill him. But we also see people like Peter and the disciples. Jesus brings out the worst in them then there's an exchange that happens. The worst of them for the best of Jesus. So, let's just quickly look at uh, all of this. Um, the first couple of verses, uh, like I said, it's, it's about, the first guys mentioned, um, it says the chief priests and the teachers of the law were looking for some way to get rid of him. And all the different groups wanted to get rid of Jesus or kill Jesus for different reasons. The chief priests, if we read the rest of the gospel, and the other Gospels as well, we realize that the, one of the main reasons they wanted to get rid of Jesus, they had different reasons, many reasons, but one of the main reasons were, it was a political reason. It was politically motivated. The chief priest, the, the, the high priest actually said, it's, it's better for one man to die than for the whole nation to die. Uh, and, and what he meant by that is, you know, he explains, he says, listen, if this thing goes on, if this guy calling himself the Messiah, and by the way, Messiah was the anointed Jewish king, and, and that's the charge brought against him uh, at his, at his uh, um, trial, is that he calls himself a king, where Caesar is the king. So they say, if this guy goes on calling himself a king, um, we're just going to lose, because either people are going to submit to him, and then the Romans are going to come and destroy us, or, you know, people are, you know, Either way, the, the Romans are going to come and sort things out. Because this king, this Messiah, is a threat to their king, Caesar. And what's worse is, we're going to lose power. Because politics is all about governance and power, right? Politics is all about governance and power. And, and how, you, how you deal with those things. And, 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 and the chief priests were the guys who had the power. Okay, they had limited power. Caesar was over them. But they submitted to Caesar as king, and under him they had certain power. And, and they knew if this Jesus comes along claiming to be king, they're going to lose their power. Either if he's the king and everyone submits to him, then the Romans are going to come and, and, and try and you know, destroy them. Or if he's the king, then they're going to lose their power in any case because they have to submit to him. 
So either way, they're going to lose their power, and they didn't want to lose their power. So we look at that, and we think, oh, you know, typical politicians, you know. <laughs> I mean, we see it in our country as well, you know, all the power plays, you know, going on in politics. But what we sometimes forget is that even though that happens on a macro scale in countries, on a micro scale, it happens in each of our lives. In each one of our lives, there's this power struggle. Because the thing is, if Jesus is whom he claims to be, then he's a threat to your power. He's a threat to your autonomy. He's a threat to you governing yourself. Because you have to submit to his government. And we have two options. Either like the disciples, we can submit to his kingdom, his governance, and then ironically, he confers a kingdom on us and we rule with him. Now, if you submit to his power, you don't lose power. In fact, you gain a lot of power. Didn't he say to the disciples, you're gonna, I confer a kingdom on you, you're going to sit on 12 thrones, you're going to rule with me? We sang about reigning and ruling with him. Or, like the chief priests, we can say, no, 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 no. I don't want this threat to my autonomy. I don't want this threat to my power. I don't want this threat to me governing myself, even if it's in a limited way, even if, if I'm governing under a Caesar. I want to govern myself, and I want to get rid of this Jesus who's this threat to my power in my life. So we can easily point fingers to the chief priest, but the reality is that all of us face that choice. All of us face that challenge. What are we going to do with the threat that Jesus poses to our power? Are we going to respond like the chief priest? And many people do. Many people do. Many people would rather get rid of Jesus in an attempt to retain their power, their autonomy, rather than submit to Jesus and lose um, their, their authority or their autonomy. The teachers of the law had more religious reasons uh, for wanting to get rid of Jesus, but they also wanted to get rid of Jesus. You see, the teachers of the law had worked out the system. They'd taken the law, the Old Testament, and they were actually, to be honest, abusing it. They were saying, that they, they turned the law, as the teachers of the law, they turned the law into a self-salvation project. This is what we must do to save ourselves. They've made it manageable. They've made it so that, you know, if you're really good, you can actually accomplish this and save yourself. And, and the reality, and it's actually in some senses a bit strange, is that as human beings, we're actually very comfortable with that. We're willing to work quite hard if we can make it by ourselves. But if we have to take handouts, our pride kicks against it. If you have to receive salvation as a handout, not comfortable. It's not that easy. And... The Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they'd worked out a system where they turned the law into a ladder which you could climb to accomplish and reach salvation. You know, as just like the, the chief priests could rule themselves, the teachers of the law said, we can save ourselves. But here comes Jesus along, and he's a big threat to this self-salvation project. He turns this whole thing upside down, and he shows people that, no, you actually can't save yourself. You are incapable of saving yourself. One of my favorite sayings is by Jonathan Edwards, and he says, the only thing that we contribute to our salvation is the sin that makes it necessary. 
The only thing we contribute to our salvation is the sin which makes it necessary. Now, why is that such a problem to us? Why is that such a problem to us? If I contribute something to my salvation, then there's a limit to what Jesus can require of me. Right? Because, I mean, I'm, I'm sort of making my contribution. I'm sort of adding my little bit to this pro- salvation project. So there's a limit to what He can require of me. But if I contribute nothing to my salvation and He saves me by grace alone, there's no limit to what He can require of me. There's no limit to what He can ask from me. And that, as, as, as fallen human beings, that doesn't sit so well with us. That doesn't always sit so well with us. And so the teachers of the law want to get rid of him because of religious reasons. Satan <laughs> wants to get rid of him, no surprise there. <laughs> and um, why does he want to kill him? Well, we see earlier on in Luke, in Luke chapter 4, just after Jesus' baptism, remember Jesus gets baptized in the Jordan by John the Baptist, the heavens open up, uh, the Holy Spirit descends on him like a dove, and, and the voice of the Father comes and says, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. And then what does the Holy Spirit do? very first thing the Holy Spirit does is leads Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. And Satan comes and he says, if you are the Son of God, command these stones to become bread. If you are the Son of God, jump down from the temple because God's going to catch you. you know? Or, look at all the kingdoms of the world. All of them are under my power. I'm the prince of the air. And I can give them to whom I want to. Just fall down and worship me and I will give them to you. In other words, you are destined to rule the earth. Allow me to help you fulfill your destiny. Just fall down and worship me, and I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. Isn't it amazing how the devil often wants to get us to to get the right thing in the wrong way? How often do we fall for that trick? Jesus didn't fall for that trick. The devil came indirectly to try and derail Jesus from his destiny. And it didn't work. And now, a few chapters later... (laughs) The devil's trying a more direct approach. Well, if I can't turn him and corrupt him, I'm going to kill him. I'm going to kill him. But I need to stop him. <laughs> that's the devil, what the devil thinks. But that's what Satan thinks. And, and he enters Judas Iscariot. And like uh, Pastor Bryson was saying, these things are real. If, you know, us as modern Westerners, I mean, in South Africa, I think less so than in places like Europe and America, because many of us have probably seen, you know, demons manifesting through people and, and maybe even um, being used by the Lord to drive out demons. But many of us have, have not. And, and we sort of being, we've been indoctrinated through media, throughout the very worldview that is, is, is um, imparted to us every day throughout, throughout society, throughout culture, throughout media, through the public discourse. Um, we, we're indoctrinated to see the world only as a physical a closed phys- physical system. In other words, a materialistic worldview, the material world is all there is. And, and what this scripture is saying is that, no, there's more than that. Because, I mean, here's this person, Satan, the enemy, the accuser, and he enters Judas, it says. It says he enters him. Now, if, if, if Satan had a physical body, how is he going to enter Judas's physical body? Clearly, Satan, I mean, if you, even if you know nothing about him and you read only that scripture, clearly he's a spiritual being that enters Judas's physical body. And he turns Judas 
into a traitor. Well, actually, the reality is Satan, for the most part, doesn't make us do what we don't want to do. He only makes us do what we already want to do. Judas was already a traitor in his heart, and Satan just came and reinforced that. Um, Judas already had sin in his heart, and Satan came to reinforce that. And he does the same with us, doesn't he? We, we can't really say that Satan made me do it. You remember a couple of years ago, Hansi Kronier? Uh, great South African cricket captain. Possibly our greatest cricket captain ever. And a great guy. You know, I was at the same school as him, and he was a legend there because he played first team cricket, first team rugby, first team everything, you know, head boy, you know, and he was a, a, a real legend. Um, and then he, there was the scandal about match fixing and so on. And what did he say? The devil made me do it. <laughs> and so often, we, we're tempted as human beings to turn the devil into a scapegoat. Just like Adam and just like Eve did as well, you know. Adam says it's Eve. Eve said it's a snake. And of course, the snake didn't have a leg to stand on. Um, you know. <laughs> Eve, Eve but, but just like Eve, we want to say, the snake made me do it. Just like Hansi Kronje, we want to say, the devil made me do it. And the reality is, yeah, maybe the devil helped you do it, but the devil only helps us do what we already want to do. We can't point fingers. In Judas's heart, he already wanted to get rid of Jesus, and he already wanted to betray Jesus, and Satan only helped him do what he already wanted to do. Um, but he did it for economic reasons. He did it for the money, baby. He did it for the money. You see, Judas had been with Jesus probably for a couple of years as his disciple. Saw miracles, followed Jesus, lived with Jesus. But clearly to Judas, the benefits of being a disciple of Jesus turned out to him to be a little disappointing. It wasn't quite what he wanted. He wanted different benefits. He wanted different benefits. And he wasn't getting those different benefits. Because, I mean, Jesus was the Christ, after all. I mean, Christ means king. So when's he going to ascend to the throne and I'm going to be one of his generals? And I'm going to, like, be a hero and I'm going to have lots of money and lots of power. And now this seems to not be happening. Where are the benefits that I signed up for? You see, Judas signed up to be Jesus' disciple for the wrong reason. For the benefits. He didn't want Jesus himself. He wanted what Jesus could give him. And he ended up betraying Jesus for that. So he went to the chief priest and said, listen, yeah, for the right price, I'll, I'll make sure that, I'll, I'll take him to you when there's no crowd around. You know, who can riot and object to his arrest. Take him to you. So for him, it was economic reasons. Um, and, the reality is all of us, as fallen human beings, uh, even though we saved by grace, we are in danger of betraying Jesus the way that Judas did. If we think, if, if we've signed up for the wrong reasons and we feel like the benefits that we're getting for being a follower of Jesus, those benefits are not what we wanted. They're not satisfactory. Then there's also the, 
the temple guards, and they had a more practical reason for it. I mean, it says, you know, the chief priests, and when Judas came, they were delighted, the chief priests and the temple guards, you know, to, to go and arrest Jesus. And, and, and for them, they were the police guys. Um, for them, it was a practical reason. We want to keep our bosses happy. And this Jesus guy, he makes our bosses very unhappy, the chief priests and, and those guys, <laughs> the Sanhedrin. He's making them very unhappy. We just want to keep our bosses happy. We're just going to follow orders. We're quite happy to follow orders to please our bosses. Um, there was a, a movie I watched a, a while ago. I think it was an X-Men movie. Uh, and, and there's this, this uh, character in the movie called Magneto, and he's, he's from a Jewish background, and, and he, um, he, you know, in, in the X-Men story, you know, these guys, mutants, supposedly have powers. I think they're very optimistic about evolution. But anyway, <laughs> way over-optimistic. But, uh, <laughs> um, you know, supposedly have powers. And, and, and you know, a, a very traumatic experience in the, in the Jewish, um, in the Nazi death camps, you know, as a, as a young Jewish boy, he sort of discovers his powers. And um, his, his mom gets killed, his, his family get killed in, in, uh, by the Nazis. And, you know, a, as he grows up, you know, when he's older, he goes and hunts these guys, these Nazis who killed his, his mother. Uh, and, and the one guy says to him, you know, and, and he's like, you know, all afraid of him now. And he says, I was just following orders. I was just following orders. And he said, I've been at the mercy of people who just follow orders. And so often, the way that we betray Jesus or deny Jesus like Peter or, or, or forsake Jesus like the other disciples is just following orders. Just the practical reason of, you know, it's easier not to follow Jesus. It's easier to follow someone else's orders than to follow Jesus' orders. So I want you to see, I mean, all these people who want to get rid of Jesus, they have reasons for doing it. And all of those reasons are temptations to us as well. They are temptations to us as well. So, so these are the sort of the, in the, in the, in the story, they're the bad guys. They're the antagonists who all want Jesus dead. But here's a bit of a surprise. We, 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 I mean, we're not surprised that the bad guys want Jesus dead. But look at this. Uh, in, verse, in verse 22, it says, The Son of Man will go as it has been decreed, but woe to the man who betrays him. We, we're not surprised that the bad guys want Jesus dead. But here it says, But the Son of Man will go as it has been decreed. Now ask yourself the question, decreed by whom? Decreed by whom? That's a passive. It's a pa passive. It has been decreed. But decreed by whom? It doesn't tell you who, who the subject is who's decreeing it. And it's, it's what's called in theology a divine passive. The Son of Man will go as it has been decreed by God the Father. In other words, here's the surprise. Not only do the bad guys want Jesus dead, God the Father wants Jesus dead. He decreed it. <laughs> right? He decreed it. And, and, and why does He want Jesus dead? Why does God the Father want Jesus dead? Well, Jesus uses a little title there for Himself. The Son of Man goes as there's been decreed. And that title actually gives us a clue. Because that's a title which appears only one place you know, sort of in that kind of context in the, in the Bible, and that's in um, 
Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 and 14. I'm going to read it to you. So just listen to this, the Son of Man. It says, in verse 13, In my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was one like the Son of Man. See, there's the title, one like the Son of Man. Coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into His presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. In other words, given a kingdom. All peoples, nations, and men uh, of every language worshipped Him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and His kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Just a bit later in verse 29, Jesus says, As my Father gives me a kingdom, or confers to me a kingdom, so I confer a kingdom to you. So you can see that when he uses the phrase son of man, to the, uh, when you read it here in Daniel, the son of man is the one who receives the kingdom. So you can see that's what he's referring to. So why does God the Father want Jesus dead? So that he can give him the kingdom. It's interesting, uh, Jesus says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. And we know, um, you know, maybe, maybe you, you're not... Um, familiar with the term covenant, but a covenant, also called a blood covenant, is um, the way they used to make ancient contracts. Okay, nowadays, you sort of sign a contract, you know, take a pen, sign, you know, um, initial each page, and then, you know, you can take it to a notary and so on, and, you know, make it official, and you have copies, official copies of it, uh, and it's binding in a court of law, but it's very easy to make that sign. You know, to just sign your, your name. In those days, if you wanted to make a contract, you got animals. You cut them down the middle, put them sort of in a row, and you walk through them. And instead of, you know, the signature of a pen, you had the blood flowing, and you pointed at those animals, those dead animals, and, and you say, may this be done to me, and worse, if I ever break the terms of this covenant. You can see that, you know, it, it's, it's going to be a bit more effective, you know. <laughs> you're sort of acting out the consequences of breaking the covenant and the contract, so you're going to be mo more likely to keep it, you know. <laughs> no wonder people break contracts so easily today, you know. It's just like a little signature. Um, so it's a blood covenant, and here's, here's the thing that, that's a bit obscured in, um, in, in most of the translations. In verse 29, when Jesus says, I confer a kingdom to you as my Father conferred a kingdom on me. Literally what he says is, I covenant a kingdom to you as my Father covenanted a kingdom to me. And every covenant, in order to be ratified, needs blood. And what Jesus is saying is, this blood, my blood, is the blood of the new covenant. The only way Jesus could go on the clouds with his ascension to the ancient of days, the Father, and receive the kingdom, have the kingdom covenanted to him so he can covenant it to us, was through death. Through death. Through the shedding of his blood. So God the Father wants Jesus dead too, but he wants him dead so that he can covenant the kingdom to him. Does that make sense? Here's, here's the freaky part. Um, here's the freaky part um, the shocking part is not it, it, the first part of, of the verse is, is, is a bit shocking when it says um, the son of man goes as it has been decreed you know because it's, it's a bit shocking because it implies that the father wants Jesus dead but the second part is but woe to the man who betrays him 
Judas, the man who betrays him. Here's the shocking part is not only that the father wants Jesus dead, but that the father uses Judas to get Jesus dead. He uses the chief priests, the teachers of the law. He uses the bad guys. Are you shocked? <gasps> Are you shocked? Jesus uses sinful people in their sinfulness to accomplish his will without being guilty of sin himself. Now, on the one hand, let me just confess this. I am actually, I mean, troubling as this truth has been to me over the years, I'm actually grateful for this truth. Because I realize if God didn't use sinful people, he wouldn't be able to use me. He wouldn't. So on the, on the, in the first place, I want to say, we should actually be very grateful for this slightly shocking truth that God uses sinful people to accomplish his sinless purposes. We should be very thankful for that, because if that were not true, if God were not powerful enough to be able to do that, he would not be able to use any of us. Any of us. I mean, all of us are fallen. Um, you know, apart from the grace of God, all of us are evil. Jesus says so. He says in, in, in the same Gospel of Luke, he says, if you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? How much will you, how more will your Father give the Holy Spirit? So those who call Jesus Father, He says, by the way, you know, um, if you then, being evil, now to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those asking? It's, it's almost as Jesus sort of just by the way says, oh, by the way, you, you know this, so I'm, I'm not even you know, trying to prove this, I'm just assuming it. You're evil. <laughs> you call God Father, you're evil. <laughs> but even though you're evil, your Father's going to give good gifts to you. I mean, that is the mind-blowing reality of the gospel. Every other religion says, no, 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 no. If you're evil, you're going to get bad stuff. And only if you're good are you going to get good stuff. Here, Jesus says, you're evil, but your father's going to give good things to you if you ask him. <laughs> How on earth, you know? How on earth? But the reality is God uses evil people. But specifically in this case, it says, the Son of Man will go as it has been decreed. It's been sovereignly decreed by God. God has decreed this is how it's going to happen. But then he says, but woe to the man by whom he's betrayed. God works through Judas' betrayal, but Judas is still guilty of his betrayal. Now, this is something, to be honest, this is difficult, and I, I don't fully understand it myself yet. This whole challenge of God's divine sovereignty and human responsibility. And how, how on earth, in our minds, those two cannot work together. Because either God is sovereign and He decrees stuff and everything that He decrees happens. And, you know, but if that is true, how can He hold people guilty? How can, he, how can He say woe to the one through whom it happens? Because He decreed for it to happen through Him. <laughs> right? Isn't that a bit of a mental challenge? Or we have you know, complete freedom of will and God, we are not subject to the sovereignty of God, uh, and, and then we can understand that we are, we are guilty of our sins, but then, you know, God is not in control of things. Now, I cannot solve this problem for you, but all I can say is 
the Bible teaches both those. The Bible teaches that God decrees and what He decrees happens. And the Bible teaches that if, he, if it happens through sinful people and their sins, then those people that He has decreed it to happen through are still guilty of their sins. Um, I always say it's like the Trinity. How can God be three and one at the same time? But there are clear scriptures that say God is three, and there are other scriptures that say God is one. And if you say, okay, I have to choose between one or the other, then you become a heretic. You either say there are three gods, or you say there is one God. The Father is God, but Jesus and the Holy Spirit not. You're a heretic. <laughs> so what do you do? You say, logically, those two things cannot be together, but somehow they, the Bible teaches both, so I'm going to accept both as true. Ex- believing that God will resolve them into a higher unity. Um, another example in the, in the physical realm is light. I mean, we see light. In fact, light is the only thing that we see, you know. <laughs> light bouncing off different stuff, you know, that has different colors. But here's the interesting thing about light. As scientists have done experiments on light, you know, they found that you can make a solar cell because light has the the um, characteristics of particles. And those particles can be absorbed and translated into uh, electrical energy. A few electrical engineers in the house that can sort of understand that. Um, so on the one hand, they say, okay, well, great. You know, light, what is light? It's a particle. It's these small little um, particles. But then on the other hand, you take a, a prism or something, you shine a light through it, and it refracts into a spectrum. And, and all kinds of ways of discovering scientifically that light is a wave. It has characteristics of a wave. But how can it be a particle and a wave at the same time? It, it seems like a contradiction. That's what's called um, an ant- uh, antinomy. An antinomy is a seeming contradiction. Light is, an ant- uh, is a kind of antinomy. Because it's both a particle discrete particles, and it's a continuous wave <laughs> at the same time. And scientists don't understand it. Well, guess what? This is the same. It's an antinomy. God is sovereign, and we are responsible at the same time. And just because we can't figure out how those two truths can both be true at the same time doesn't make them not true. God is sovereign. And when God wants Jesus dead, He will die, and He will die in the way that God decreed it to happen. But woe to the one through whom it happens. Just because God decreed it doesn't make you not guilty of your sin. And like I said, I'm thankful for, for that truth because it means God can actually use me. Um, C.S. Lewis says, We all inevitably serve God's purposes, but it makes a difference to us whether we serve Him like Judas or like John. <laughs> right? Judas was serving God's purposes. John was serving God's purposes. Peter was serving God's purposes. We all inevitably serve God's purposes, but it makes a difference to us whether we serve Him like Judas or like John. It makes a difference to us. And therefore, what we choose is very important. Don't say, well, you know, Pastor Any says God is sovereign, therefore what I choose doesn't matter anymore because God has already chosen. No, 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 no. Slow down. What you choose is very important. It's crucially important. Whether you choose to serve him like Judas or whether you choose to... You're going to serve him. You're going to serve his purposes. He's sovereign enough to 
to make sure that happens. But whether you serve him like Judas or whether you serve him like John makes a big difference to you. Let me show you this. Here's the freaky part. Even Satan serves him. Right? Even Satan serves his purposes. Because Satan going into Judas in order to betray Jesus fulfilled God's purposes. But later on, when, when, when he talks to Peter, he says, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked for you to sift you like wheat. In other words, what we see here is God has got Satan on a short leash. He's got him on a short leash. He has to ask permission to do anything to Peter. But, but not only Peter. Actually, uh, when he says Satan has asked for you to, to um, sift you, the you there is plural. Satan didn't only ask for Judas. And Satan didn't only ask for Peter. Satan asked for all of them. To sift them. But Jesus says, I've prayed for you. I've prayed for you. But, but the point I want you to see is even Satan ends up serving God's purposes. God has Satan on a short leash. You know, in this cosmic battle between good and evil, you know, it's, it's, not, it's not really a cliffhanger. It's, it's not a drama. It's not a thriller. Be because it's a no contest, actually. It's not like you have this great evil power and this great power of good fighting against each other and they're kind of, you know, evenly balanced. It's, it's no contest. It's not even a fight. Satan ends up serving God's purposes. He does his worst and he ends up only serving God's purposes. Um... But not, not only do the bad guys want Jesus dead and God the Father wants Jesus dead, but Jesus himself want, wants Jesus dead. <laughs> Jesus himself wants Jesus dead. Listen to this. Um, he said, uh, why, why did Jesus want himself dead, you know? Um, and, and two things I want to show you. Um, what his death does for us and what his death does to us. Firstly, this whole thing happens, and, and, I, and I'm running out of time, so I want to go through this rather quickly. Um, I'm not going to show you all where I, exactly I get everything, but he, he talks about the Passover, the Feast of the Passover, and, and we know what happened at the Passover. The Passover instituted when the Israelites were slaves in Egypt, and with the, the final uh, plague of the ten plagues, the death of the firstborn, they had to slaughter the Passover lamb, painted the blood on the doorpost, the lintels on the doorpost, and then the next day God took them you know, with the Exodus. Actually, the next day started also the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which is also mentioned, and I'll refer to that now. But then started the Exodus, where God took them through the Dead Sea, uh, through the, the Red Sea, to, uh, and through the Jordan into the Promised Land eventually. Now, what Jesus is saying here is, He says, this, this bread is my body given for you. And this cup is my blood poured out for you. And the given and the poured out for you, literally is on behalf of you. In a sense, in your stead. So Jesus is saying, on the Passover, on that very feast, a few thousand years later, to commemorate that very same killing of the Passover lamb, so that the, new, the, so that the exodus can start, Jesus is saying, I am that lamb. I'm the fulfillment of that lamb. Remember that lamb had to be without spot or blemish? And in other words, you want to pay for your sins, you've got to pay with something perfect. We, we don't have anything like that. So you need a substitute. And then Jesus says, I am that substitute. I am that perfect lamb. I, my body is given 
instead of yours. My blood is poured out instead of yours. I am the Passover lamb that what happened with the Passover lamb? They painted the blood on the doorpost, and when the death angel, in other words, the rightful judgment for sin came, it passed over the houses where there was blood on the doorposts. Now, in Egypt, with the Exodus, the original Exodus, how many, how many, how many of the Egyptians were sinners who deserved God's judgment? All of them. How many of the Jews were sinners who deserved God's judgment? All of them. All of them. So, here's the first thing Jesus says. I want to die in order to protect you from the judgment you deserve. My blood, this cup, which is the blood of the new covenant, is like the blood of the Passover lamb that protects you. If through repentance and faith you paint it on the doorpost of your heart, protects you from the judgment you deserve. That's the first reason, the first thing Jesus does for us. Another thing that he does for us um, is the exodus that, that leads to that. Uh, in other words, what Jesus is saying by doing all of this and instituting all of this during the Passover festival, which is linked with the exodus, is like Israel of, of the past, all of you are slaves. You might not be slaves to Pharaoh, but all of you are slaves. And I have come to set you free. It's another thing Jesus does for us through, through his death. He sets us free from the bondage and the slavery that we're in. And you know, this world, this modern world, really values freedom. That might be one of the things we value most, our freedom. Freedom of choice, freedom of speech, freedom of this, freedom of, of that. And freedom is a good thing. But what Jesus is saying is, you only get real, true, lasting freedom if you get it through me and through my death. I died to give you lasting freedom. That's another thing he does for us. Um, and then he also talks about, uh, like I said, the kingdom. I confer, I covenant the kingdom to you. The way that we can become part of his kingdom is only through his death. Because he covenants, and, and covenanting requires blood. He covenants the kingdom to us. Um, and also he makes us a community. Let me just maybe read this, because he refers you, he says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. And if you go and look in the Old Testament, remember when Jesus said that the New Testament had not yet been written? So what is he referring to when he, when he uses the, the phrase new covenant? Well, there's only one place in the Old Testament where that phrase is used, and that's in Jeremiah 31. Listen to what it says. Verse uh, 31. Jeremiah 31, verse 31. It says, the time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand and led them out of Egypt. In other words, the, the, with the Exodus, with the Passover, that was when the old covenant was made, right? And, and, and here, in, already in Jeremiah, a few hundred years, five, six hundred years before Christ, God already says, the time is coming when I'm going to make a new covenant to replace this old covenant. Okay, um, And he says, uh, because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel at that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts and will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will a man teach his neighbor 
<clears throat> or a man his brother saying, Know the Lord, because they will all know me from the least to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. Wow. Notice that little phrase, though I was a husband to them. Though I was a husband to them. In other words, God uses the imagery of marriage here to help us understand what a covenant is. And here's the thing that you need to get. Here's what Jesus is doing here with this new covenant. He's saying, I'm offering you a marriage-like covenant relationship. What do you do when you make covenant? One of the best definitions I heard of covenant is covenant is extended kinship. You know what kinship is? Family ties. Uh, when, when someone dies, you inform their next of kin, their closest living relative. So when you say that covenant is extended kinship, we, we say that when you make covenant with someone, you take someone who is not your family and, they, and you make them your family. So that's what you do when you get married, right? You take someone who's hopefully not related to you, you know, <laughs> genetically, and you make them your family. You make them part of your family. And, and, and what Jesus is saying here when he refers to that phrase, new covenant, he says, I'm offering you family. I'm offering you to, to make you my family. I'm offering to be a husband to you. I'm offering to make you a community, but a specific kind of community, a family. So what does Jesus do for us through his death? Because all covenant requires blood. All covenant requires blood. Even marriage covenant. I mean, if two virgins come together and have sexual intercourse, um, there's blood. And that's the blood of the marriage covenant. Right, Dr. Scarpa? <laughs> and Jesus says, the blood that is required for me to make you my family is the blood of my death, the blood of this cup, the blood of the new covenant. That's what Jesus does um, for us. But um, what does Jesus do to us? Um, he brings out the worst of us so he can replace it with the best of him. Um, and we, we see that uh, with, with Peter and all the disciples. And I, and I just want to refer to this just to be balanced, but I'm actually out of time, so I'm going to stop, I'm going to stop now. But um, there's this portion where, where they're arguing. Jesus is about to die. He's, he's instituting the Lord's Supper and saying, here's my body which is broken, I'm going to die. Here's my, you know, this cup is my blood which is said, I'm going to die for you in your place. And what are they arguing about? Who's the greatest? <laughs> Who's the greatest? Can you see how Jesus is bringing out the worst in them? This worst, it like surfaces, and, and then Jesus deals with it. He says, listen here, guys, you don't get it. I died for you not only to do something for you, but I died for you to do something to you. When you receive my death, when you receive my death in the new covenant, I write the law of the new covenant, which is like the marriage vows. This new covenant is, is like a, um, marriage vows written on our hearts. He says, when I do that, I'm not only doing something for you and forgiving your sins, but I'm doing something to you. I'm making you like me by writing my law on your hearts. And then be like me, because I came as undisputably the greatest, and I'm here to serve you. I'm here to serve you. You should be like me in that. Now, just one thing I want to mention um, in, in, in closing. You know, when, when we see Jesus 
giving himself and dying for those who just don't get it. I mean, he's saying he's dying for the apostles and, and they're arguing about who's the greatest. They just don't get it. But when we look at ourselves, we realize that we're just like the apostles. We don't get it. We don't deserve it. When we see Jesus dying for those who don't deserve it and don't get it, just like us, us, then we can also give our lives for those who don't deserve it and don't get it, for one another. In other words, the kind of community that Jesus creates here, the kind of family that he creates, is a self-sacrificing family who sacrifices themselves for those who don't get it and those who don't deserve it, just like us. Imagine a family like that. Imagine we could really live that out. What kind of family we would be? Imagine how people in the world would stream to us and say, well, I want to be part of this family, you know. Because uh, even though I don't get it and even though I don't deserve it, they are sacrificing their lives for me. Loving me the way that they were loved. And that's the point. That's the point. You can only love like you have been loved. You can only love like Jesus if you've been loved so by Jesus. And think about that love. Jesus went with eyes wide open into this thing, knowing what he would suffer, knowing how he would die. And the knowledge of that suffering and that excruciating death did not prevent him from giving his life for you. And if the suffering and the death that Jesus knew he had to die for you didn't prevent him from dying that death for you, how much does he really love you? How much does he really love you? A lot more than you realize. And when you realize that, and to the extent that you realize that, you can love others in that way. To the extent that you receive that love, which he died to give you, you can give a similar love to others. We can give that love to one another. <clears throat> you see, Jesus also wanted Jesus dead, but this is the reason why. He interprets it. Now, here's the, the strange thing is, the bad guys want Jesus dead, the good guys want Jesus dead. They want the same thing. The plan of darkness and the plan of salvation are the same plan. Different reasons, but the same plan. And that's what we celebrate when we celebrate communion. Can we just hand out the, the elements of the communion? Uh, please, the, the ushers, can you just bring the elements of the communion? So, the question is, okay, fine, Any? Uh, <laughs> you, you want me to experience Jesus' love, you want me to see what Jesus did for me, uh, you want me to say, okay, Jesus loved me so that I can love in return, um, I, you want me to experience that Jesus uh, gave his life for me even though I don't deserve it and even though I don't get it so that I can do the same for others, but how do I do that? Well, one of the answers is this, communion. Communion. Where God wants you um, to symbolically receive Jesus' body, which was broken for you, and drink the cup, of, which represents His blood, which was shed for you. And He wants you to, as it were, take in, ingest, receive, swallow, Jesus and what he did for you to make it part of you. I've said this before, but I, I, I think I should say it again. Um, of all our senses, 
traditionally the five senses. You know, touch. Um, you know, if I, if I touch this water, my finger will get wet, but the water won't become part of me. If I see this water, I notice it, and I can see what it does, and it looks pretty and all, but the water doesn't become part of me. If I shake it, and I hear the water, you know, I hear it, but it still doesn't become part of me. I can open it and smell it, and you can actually smell this water. <laughs> it's got a little bit of a clear smell to it. <laughs> Probably not the water I'm smelling. But the water still doesn't become part of me. But if I take a sip of it, <coughs> and I drink, <laughs> and I drink the water, the water becomes part of me. <coughs> so of all five of my senses, taste is the only one that makes what I taste part of me. And Jesus says, I want you to not only hear what I did for you, I, I want you to not only see what I did for you, I want you to taste what I did for you, so that what I did for you can become part of you. That's what we're doing when we use communion. That's what we're doing when we use communion. We're allowing what Jesus did to us, we, we, we're tasting it and allowing it to become part of us. That's powerful, people, if we can do that. So I want you to take this communion seriously. Don't, um, don't see it as, as a mere ritual that we must do and just get done because we always do it. Don't miss the power in this. Whenever they had Passover, whenever they did Passover, they were remembering what the covenant that God made for them and through the covenant how God saved them from their sin, from their bondage, from the judgment they deserved. And when we have communion, we do the same. It's a covenant renewal ceremony. It's a remembrance and covenant renewal ceremony. So let's take that seriously. Lord Jesus, we thank you for this bread which represents your body which was broken for us. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that the judgment that we deserved, you took upon yourself so that we won't have to receive it. Thank you that you loved us that much. And Lord, I just pray for each one of us as we taste this bread that we were, will, as it were, taste your love for us. That we will taste your love for us. Let's eat together. I just, before, you, before we drink together, I just want you to close your eyes and just, in your own words, pray to Jesus and say, Lord, as I receive this cup, the blood of the new covenant, I receive you and everything you stand for. Just in your own words, just say that to Jesus. Jesus, we thank you that through the blood of the new covenant, you become a husband to us. You make a marriage-like covenant relationship with us where you make us your family, your bride, your people. And we receive that now and we thank you for that now in Jesus' name. We give ourselves to you even as you gave yourself to us. Let's drink together.
Thanks for listening to this message from Shaza Johannesburg. May the grace you receive produce God's greatest glory and your greatest good. For more information and sermons, please visit our website at www.shofar.jobberg.